0: So in 2017, uh, Psychology Today uh, published a landmark study that really irked a lot of people and found that there are real differences in men and women in personality and behavior. It's not just stereotypes, it's not just social constructs. They discovered this in this extensive research across various cultures and including even in infants as young as a couple of months old. And so a couple of things that they found that were clear, uh, personality and behavioral differences, that women, in general, tend to be much more empathetic than men. Men tend to be much more physically aggressive. Things like men had a tendency to be able to better rotate dimensional objects in their mind, including things like being able to recognize upside-down characters. That women excelled at locating objects in their visual field and were better able to remember exactly where things like Big Ben are on the map of London. And they discovered that this wasn't simply social constructs because uh, even as they analyzed statistics from more progressive egalitarian cultures like Scandinavia, where so- socialization and roles are much more balanced between men and women, the differences were actually even more pronounced in those kinds of countries. And the reason why is because When you treat everyone the same, then only biology and genetic predispositions explained these major observable differences. All that to say, the Bible reveals that the differences between men and women aren't just biological, but that some of them have spiritual implications. And so that's why we're gonna explore why that's important, why that's necessary for us in the context of what does it mean to worship God together as men and women, as families in the church. And so if you have a Bible, you wanna turn in it to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's one right in front of you, like under the seat, if you don't own a Bible personally, you can take that one home. That's actually what they're there for. We just restocked them so you're not stealing. Uh, but please grab one, and, uh, or you can look on your Bible app. Uh, we're in this series called Clear. We're going through the book of 1 Corinthians, where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see life through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. And what's happening is the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this kind of cool, hip, up-and-coming urban church in the city of Corinth. That they are to be, instead of blinded by the values of the world around them, to see more clearly through their identity in Christ. That as you are loved, as you are forgiven, as you are transformed through the cross, that he guides us and grows us in holiness and in unity together to be distinct from the world, to be a light to the world around us. And then he shows us how to practically apply that in many areas of life, like sin and conflicts and sex and relationships. And so to catch you up, we've been talking through chapters 8 through 10, where Paul's teaching us that Christian living and Christian decisions aren't a checklist about how much legalism is required or how much liberty is permitted, but instead whatever you do to do it all for the glory of God and the good of other people around us. So it's about glorifying God. But as we dive into chapter 11, Paul asks the question, what what if the problem is in how we glorify God? What if we don't know how to do that? So in chapters 11 through 14, the Corinthian church, they're experiencing all kinds of disorder and discord as they gather together for worship, where they're emphasizing their freedoms in Christ individually while undermining the authority of Christ. And so, I'm warning you now, <laughs> this message is going to offend you. Whatever side of the political spectrum you're on, it's going to offend you in certain ways. And we're going to bristle a little bit as we read through this, read, reading through 21st century American eyes. And so, I'm praying for us to be able to understand and apply these things through the lens of biblical eyes. So, we're picking up in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now, I, Paul, commend you, the Corinthian church, because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors Her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. This is one of those passages, like, uh, you know, it's so tempting just to skip over. I've never preached this in all my years of ministry. I've never talked about this passage. So let's dive right into it, okay? What's happening here? Verse 2, Paul commends the Corinthians church for keeping the traditions that he's passed on to them. And I want you to understand this because a lot of times when we read the Bible, we see that he's not talking about the kind of man-made tr- uh, rules and traditions that people have put in addition to the Bible, the way that the Pharisees did who opposed Jesus, Right? And so instead, he's talking about the practices of the church that the apostles have passed on to them uh, to teach them how to be a good testimony about Jesus within their cultural context. So for example, we are a non-denominational evangelical church. That means that we're not affiliated with like Presbyterians, Baptists, but that doesn't mean that we have do-it-yourself theology and practices. We're part of, we represent the larger church, capital C, and so we're under the authority of Christ and scriptures. Now, the problem, Paul says, for this, this uh, group of, of Corinthian Christians is that they're deviating from the traditions of honoring God in their relationships and roles as men and women as they worship together as a family. So here he, he lays out the biblical theology for us in verse 3 that Jesus has headship. He has leadership over every man, over every one. And then a husband, likewise, has headship, has spiritual leadership, over his wife and i want you to catch that not over other women over his wife over his family and not in a demanding or demeaning way not in a women are less valuable or less capable way but instead if you look at the passage he says women are to be like jesus did you notice at the end of verse 3 that jesus is the one who places himself under the headship of God the Father, though we, Paul also teaches us in Philippians chapter two, that Jesus in very nature God, equal to his Father, chose to serve people sacrificially, lay down his life, to obey his Father humbly at the cross. That that's what leadership looks like. And that women, when we submit ourselves to the authority of our husbands, that we're being like Jesus. And so I want you to think about this because I know you're bristling a little bit. How does Jesus define leadership? In Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, he says that in the kingdom of God, leadership isn't like lording over others like worldly, authority, worldly authorities do, but to become the servant of all. I want you to hear that, especially men. And then Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands. You know, after there's that, that one little verse about uh, wives, uh, submit to the authority, honor your husbands, and submit to their authority. That's one line of instruction. And then there's this whole paragraph when Paul goes into into husbands. Husbands, this is what your leadership should look like. By loving your wife the way that Jesus loves the church, his bride. How does Jesus do that? By laying down his life for her good, for her sanctification. And so there's this picture of leadership that's not just telling other people what to do, making final decisions, no. But this idea of Serving and loving someone by taking initiative, taking responsibility to love, serve, and sacrifice for God, and then guiding your wife to do the same by loving and serving and sacrificing for her. That is spiritual leadership. And so I remember talking to uh, a young man recently married, uh, not from our church, but this man was grumbling about his wife who wouldn't listen to all the things that, that he had suggested to her and ended up making a minor financial mistake. I consider minor. In his mind, it was pretty big. But he was grumbling about it, about it, like, she doesn't submit to me as you know my wife's supposed to. And, and I said, you know, uh, I don't, I'm not sure you understand leadership. See, Jesus teaches spiritual leadership is not just about having the authority to lead, it's also the responsibility to love and sacrifice. And so what leadership does is it cannot say, well, this is your mess, you need to clean it up. This is your mistake, and so you need to fix it. Because then we're just repeating the same sins of Adam in the garden when he passively and silently stood by while Eve was being tempted, didn't lead, didn't say anything, and instead just blames the woman, blames Eve in front of God and walks. And so what spiritual leadership looks like for a man is that whatever, whether or not it's my fault, it's my responsibility. That as Jesus As Jesus' bride, as the church, I want you to think about this way. When we sin as the bride of Jesus, the bride of Christ, is that Jesus' fault? No. But does Jesus turn his back on us when we make a mistake? Does he make us pay him back? No. Instead, what he does is he leads by initiating, reaching out to us. He takes responsibility for reconciling us by serving, suffering, sacrificing, and dying on a cross for us. So this plays out in a weird way in, in Corinthians, the way that the Corinthians need to worship Jesus as a family and honor Jesus' authority in verses 4 and 5. It says that men, don't cover your head because remember he said that that's the symbol of Jesus' authority, his headship over you. Women, don't uncover your head to respect your husband's spiritual leadership when you're praying and prophesying at church, at the church worship service, because both are about honoring the headship and leadership of Jesus. Okay, Paul, that's weird. So how does this work? That mean like women need to wear a little hat on Sundays and men take off your baseball caps when we pray. This is where culture and context actually matter. So I want you to picture this. For first century Jewish culture, as well as Greco-Roman culture, What was common in society at that time was that women would either wear a scarf on their heads or have their hair tied up in a bun because it was a symbol demonstrating their submission to authority, that if I respect my dad if I'm single or I respect my husband if I'm married in church, I respect Jesus and the Bible and the elders, the teaching elders of the church, I don't mind godly authority, I honor it. And so they would cover their heads. And so we know in Jewish culture back then, like from Numbers chapter five verse eighteen, that if your hair was let down as, as a woman, is usually a sign that you're being charged with adultery. In Corinthian society, and we've talked about this in the past, about how there were these pagan uh, priestesses that would go out through the streets and, and solicit um, pro- as prostitutes, solicit sex for offering money for their for the uh, cult of Aphrodite. And so, in Corinthian culture only prostitutes would uncover their hair as a way of showing that they're sexually available. So Paul says in verse 6 that those kind of things, those two things, that's worse than if, if a woman were to cut off all of her hair, shave her hair, because uh, you know in the Bible, in Jewish culture back then in the Old Testament, a shaven head or a cut hair was a symbol of slavery and shame. And so I want you to think about it this way. We're talking about cultural context. For the average woman back then, In their society, if you uncovered your head or if you let your hair down in public, it would be very shocking. It would be like walking around topless in the red light district. That's the signal that you would be sending. And so the big idea of the text this morning is that we are to honor Jesus and his authority over us by using the spiritual gifts that we have to worship God according to his designs for men and women that this t- text talks about how women honor Jesus by respecting his authority as they serve, as they lead, as they worship, and that men honor Jesus by reflecting his authority as we serve, as we lead, as we worship. Now, if you're a visitor here this morning, part of you should be reacting like, oh, no, I have accidentally walked into one of those weird fundamentalist cults that oppress women, and that's not what's happening here. I want you to pay attention, because this is extraordinary. Think back culturally. In the Roman Empire, women were not treated as equal human beings before the law. They're not allowed to be active in politics. They weren't taught how to write. write. And so a lot of times, women were treated as less than in society. But here, what Jesus does, when Jesus comes, he flips the script upside down and opens up the kingdom of God in a revolutionary way for women, welcoming men and women in this passage to use their spiritual gift. Did you see this? To lead the church in prayer during the worship service, to lead the church in prophesying an encouragement from God and his word. And this isn't something new, like as if like, well, Christianity comes and kind of turns like religion upside down because it was prophesied over 400 years earlier in in the book of Joel, chapter two, verse 28, with Jesus's coming that God says, I will pour out my spirit on all my people and that both sons and daughters would prophesy. So this Corinthian church isn't practicing something that's unbiblical. They're fulfilling something that was biblically prophesied. And so let me put this to you this way. If you are a woman who wants to be in authority or in ministry or a leader in the church, it's fine. It's fine. And the questions that you wanna ask yourself are, number one, am I a godly woman who loves Jesus and the Bible? Number two, do I respect godly authority at home and at church? And the flip side for that is men when it talks about Covering your head, uh, that men, you don't get to lead in the church or in the context of worship if your head is covered. In other words, if you tend to shy from your God given authority, you shy away from taking responsibility, that you're not a good husband and father in 1 Timothy chapter 3, Titus chapter 1 as requirements, that you're not representing and honoring the headship of Christ, then you don't get to lead. And so the picture here, as we follow God's design, That there's dignity and opportunity for men and women to lead and worship God together. Okay, Pastor Josh, it still sounds, you know, a little bit sexist. So why does honoring God's authority mean also having to honor my husband's authority? Verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her heads because of the angels. Question mark. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. I stand here very humbly as a man trying to preach this passage to you, and so I want to look at it this way. When there's questions in the culture about gender, about sexuality, about identity, how men and women relate to one another to honor God, Paul never answers from the culture. He goes back to creation the way that God intended. And so he's talking about in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, how God created Adam and Eve. Together, it says, they, they reflect the image of the very living God. They're made in His image to reflect His glory together, not just man, not just woman, but together. And in verse 7, Paul says that men are not to cover their head because that's the symbol of Jesus' authority. And that when God created Adam first, that it's not just chronological, but it's also theological in implication. That he was brought first to honor God and represent his authority. Now, Eve also honors God, but in addition, Eve's presence brings honor to Adam. But I want you to hear this, because we read this and it sounds like as if Paul's saying, or the Bible's saying, that are women just an afterthought? Like, oh, let's make a female version of the the dude, right? No, I want you to picture it this way. Eve is the final finishing touch of God's creation, that when he's done, he declares, now it is all very good. She is the glory of relational intimacy and relational growth that reflects the glory of the relational and triune God, because in Genesis chapter two, God declared, when he created Adam, it's not good for the man to be alone. But creation became very good, chapter 1, verse 31 of Genesis, when he created Eve to demonstrate the glory of relational intimacy, vulnerability. Because it's a picture of what God is like when the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit relate to one another. How so? So how does, how does Eve reflect that glory with Adam. Look at verses 8 and 9. It says two things that you're going to read and it's going to sound bad to you at first, but I want you to hear it, to really hear it. That Eve was made from Adam's side, bless you, because Eve was made for Adam's side. What that means is that in Genesis 2:18, it talks about how Eve was made out of the side of Adam, not from his head so that she he, she wouldn't rule over him, not from his feet. Matthew Henry the commentator says so that uh, men would trample on women, but from his side, so that they would be a helper, a companion. And so the word that God uses in Genesis 2.18 is that Eve is made from Adam's side, for Adam's side, as, here's a Hebrew lesson for you, his azer That means one who helps. We translate in English as helper. Now, you should hear this, and it's going to sound demeaning. Like, helper is like someone's sidekick, or assistant, or servant, someone to... Chauvinistic men would say, help with my cooking and my cleaning and my chores. And if you think that way, you don't need an azer you need to grow up. But we think about that as if I'm helping someone who's more important and more relevant to me than me. So let me reframe this for you biblically. The only other place that God uses the word azer in Genesis refers to God himself. In Genesis chapter 49, verse 25, that Israel is saved by the God of your fathers who helps us by the Almighty who blesses us. In fact, this word Azair only occurs 20 times in the Old Testament, and it almost always describes God. The only other times is to describe women. And the picture is always when people are desperately needing him to come through as our strength, as our Savior, as our comfort, as our counsel, as our help, as our hope. That's an Azer. And so women honor their husband's authority not because they're less than or because they're weaker. Instead, Paul says in verse 10, you're like the mighty angels who are much more powerful than human beings who have to cover their face, who cover their face in the presence of God's glory in Isaiah chapter six. And so likewise, women cover their head in this culture as a symbol of humility, of worshiping God, of honoring his authority. And it'd be easy for a lot of men, and a lot of men have done this throughout history, to try to twist this scripture to appear in a domineering oppressive and abusive way but paul makes clear here's where we turn the tables and put some gospel into it verse 11 that in the lord jesus neither men or women are independent of each other that both are valued and need each other then in verse 12 he says before you get all high and mighty about your position in christ even though eve was originally created from a man after that every man born afterwards comes from a woman In other words, Paul is saying that they're equally valued, they're equally needed, they're equally uh, contributing, they're equal before God because the reality is that both come from God and under his authority. And so the picture that Paul is painting for us is that even though we have different roles as men and women, we're made to honor and worship God together. It's incomplete without both men and women bringing what they have to the table. And so here's where I'm going to challenge you. The Bible doesn't have a chauvinistic view. It's not saying women are less than men. It's not a radical feminist view that there's no sexual distinctions. It's a biblical view that says that there's equality of value and dignity, difference in role and responsibility, and when we worship and work together, it's complementary, that both are necessary because when men and women work together in honoring and serving and leading, that it more fully reveals and honors God. And his authority and so we think about you know when god says that it's not good for a man to be alone that would include things like leading worship or leading a church because then the teaching and the music and the ministry gets kind of skewed by testosterone and craft beer and and uh you'd have like you know unsupervised kids in the nursery with men putting them in just here just have some football pads and let's do survival of the fittest and um yeah and then all the the sermon stories end up being things about about stupid sports or collecting transformers, which is very manly. And so you need an Azar to come alongside us like the Holy Spirit. The picture of an Azar in the Old Testament is the picture of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament to come alongside us to give wisdom and power and perspective to honor and serve Jesus by honoring, ser- honoring and serving everyone. So before I was the primary preacher at our church, uh, my supervising pastor went on vacation uh, one week, and it was kind of a chill week until I realized that, oh, I forgot. That that means I'm supposed to be preaching that Sunday. And I realized that Friday afternoon. And so I had this 24-hour frenzy of prayer and panic and having to turn to my wife, she was uh, then, then, I don't think we were married yet at that time, but to Melissa. Now, I'm the one who exercises my spiritual gifts and spiritual authority of preaching, but I needed my Azair to come alongside me, to talk me through the message, to encourage me, to challenge me, to convict me. She was the editing eyes to finish, uh, help me finish with sharper stories and sharper insights from a woman's perspective. And can I tell you, uh, of, of all the messages that, uh, that I gave, and not just me, but that from our, our church website, we used to keep track of how many, how many times our, um, our messages were downloaded this message ended up being the most downloaded message in all the history of keeping track of um, our English sermons. And it was because of the synergy of the gifts and roles working together to the glory and worship of Jesus. Okay, Pastor Josh, so differing roles, we're better together. If it's for Jesus' glory authorities authority, is there anything else about men and, worship, men and women worshiping together that we should know? Verse 13. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, <laughs> it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God." So, what does this mean? Men, you need to remove your hats, get a haircut. Women, you need to wear a doily on your head and no pixie cuts. Verse 13 through 15, Paul says, come on, guys, you can figure this out for yourself from your natural sense of what is appropriate for men and women. Now, generally speaking, in their culture, men's head and hair were not covered, wasn't long. And women's hair was long, but not uncovered or let down. But I want you to think about this way. If you lived in the time of the movie Bravehearts, I know I'm dating myself a little bit, you have men who are running around with extremely long hair. They're wearing skirts, kilts, and uh, they're wearing blue makeup as they enter into battle. Now, does that look like a man to you in first century culture? Was that what a man looks like in that time frame? And so I want to propose to you that it's not a sin for, in our culture for a man to have long hair because it doesn't have the same meaning today, right? And I want you to understand that the Bible is full of principles and methods, And the goal is to point to Jesus to honor God. Principles transcend culture. They're universal. Methods are culturally appropriate and applicable. And so the principle in this passage is that we embrace being a man or woman, being the man or woman that God created us to be to worship and honor Jesus and and his authority in our culture, in our cultural context. That some cultures look different, but the principles are the same. And so we want to es- extract from the methodology and ask, how do we worship Jesus by being comfortable in our skin as a man, as a woman, to the glory of God and the good of others? And Paul concludes in verse 16 that if anyone is contentious about this, in other words, that you're arguing, you're angry, angry about this issue because you're offended, because you're on the far right of the political spectrum or on the far left where we're placing our freedom and expression of expression above the glory and authority of God, then Paul says, in all the churches, there is no other practice. Now, some of you would say, but, but I read a book or I heard a sermon, I know a church. That may not be a church because churches obey Jesus and obey scripture and honor his authority uh, instead of rebelling against his created order. And what Paul says is, there is no other practice. That's the way it is, that God created men and women differently Complementarily, and he calls it very good in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. So that together they paint a fuller picture of God's glory and his authority. Okay, but it's still kind of confusing. Like, does it mean I need to wear a hat and not wear a hat? Uh, How do we extract a principle and apply this to our culture? Uh, Let me take you in a different direction from it. Let me give you a different example from the Bible. Later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 20, Paul uh, instructs the church greet one another with a holy kiss and so uh if you were to to, if i want to ask did anyone here kiss someone as you were on on your way into the church please say no why because it's a different meaning in our culture so we have principles and methods and some methods work from one culture to another culture so in some cultures, you could actually walk into a church and kiss someone on the cheek, and that's just how they say hello to each other in that culture. But here in this culture, if you came up to me this morning and said hi, Pastor Josh, and then you leaned in, I'd be like, No, wait, what are you doing, man? That's not how it works here, okay? Or if you came in here and uh, and, and the greeters they were wearing these t-shirts that says, you know, every newcomer, a gift comes with a kiss, you know? Then every woman that's coming in this morning would say, you know, that doesn't feel very biblical. In fact, that feels very creepy maybe that feels like a lawsuit and so the principle here is to greet one another in a loving culturally appropriate way right that's what that instruction means that's the pr- that's the principle and the method that we do this in a church we shake hands and maybe give you a hug right so back to the topic do you have to wear a head covering do you have to worry about the length of your hair in order to be a man or a woman Uh, You heard me already earlier during the service emphasize that. We as a church, we emphasize being a come-as-you-are church, that you come whether you're rich or you're poor, whether you're black or white or Asian or Latino. You come in your Sunday suit or in your sweats, doesn't matter. You come if you're in a season of celebration or devastation. You come with your brokenness and baggage because Jesus embraces you as you are. In addition, the principle here is that come worship God as you are. Embracing who God has made you to be as a man or woman because it honors his authority and it tells people that your creator Is good that he does not make mistakes He doesn't make trash that men and women are made in his image and though we're tarnished by sin yet redeemed by a savior And so we worship him and honor him by coming as we are So at this church We're not gonna police what you wear. How long is your hair? Whether you're covered in bears, nobody cares. Because there's a diverse range of what men and women look like in our culture. But the principle here is that we come as we are before God when we worship. Embrace who we are, who God has made us to be as men and women, because it shows people that we love Jesus, we trust Jesus, we honor Jesus, we worship Jesus by embracing his authority and his created order. So we need to be clear about how men and women worship Jesus together as, a, as the family of God. And the goal here is to honor Jesus, to be like Jesus. So women are to respect authority like Jesus does, and men reflect authority like Jesus does. And as we bring these different cards together, then we get this full house, this full picture of the goodness of God exalting his leadership, his lordship, his authority over our lives. And so let me give you a couple practical things to, to, to leave with. Married men, You look at Jesus and you ask, how does Jesus exercise his authority over his bride, the church? It's the whole theme of Ephesians chapter 5. Is Jesus abusive and oppressive towards the church? Does he yell at her? Does he cheat on her? Is he unkind to her? Not even a little bit. And so we lead by taking initiative, taking responsibility to love your wife like Jesus loves his church and to lead her to worship Jesus together. Single men, You don't have any spiritual authority over a woman who is not your wife. But don't cover your head. What I mean is, don't shy away from reflecting Jesus' spiritual leadership. That means you lead by taking responsibility for your sin and repentance. You lead by taking initiative to serve others, to pray for people, to worship Jesus. Represent and honor his headship over your life. Married women, you look to Jesus and ask, How does Jesus respect and submit to the authority of his Father? And how does that shape my response? You see, Jesus knows his identity and his equality with God the Father, yet he doesn't fight him for it, he honors him. So we can be under authority like Jesus is, with dignity and value. Ladies, if you wanna be involved in church worship or church leadership, you can be a deacon, You can teach the Bible, you can go into seminary, you can go into full-time ministry under the authority of male elders. And if you love the Lord and you love his word and you want to serve Jesus and you respect authority, you're given a lot of freedom because a mature, godly, honorable woman gets a lot of freedom in Christ. For all of us, we want to embrace who God made us to be as men and women because it all points to, it's all centered on Jesus His authority, His glory. And so men, reflect authority like Jesus does. Women, respect authority like Jesus does. And may our worship and our relationships together bring glory and honor to Jesus as our creator, our intentional creator, as our Savior, and as our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is a very challenging passage for us because it really rubs us the wrong way culturally. And so we continue to ask, in humility, we recognize you are God. You are our Savior. You love us. You honor us. You created us with dignity. And so we ask as we process the thoughts from this section of the Word of God, we recognize all of your Word is useful and good for teaching, instruction, correction, and to transform our lives to be more like Jesus, to enjoy more of Jesus. So would you help us today not to look at How does your authority, how is that something that we abuse on other people? Or how do how does that how do people how have people use that to abuse us? But instead we submit ourselves to your ultimate authority and ask us to ask that you would help us to live this out in our lives, to be men who honor Jesus by honoring authority in a sacrificial, loving, serving way, to be women who have freedom to also lead in different contexts, but honoring the authority of Jesus. We ask that you would bring us to repentance of the ways that we have, maybe, in wanting to be a good testimony to show people the love of Christ, maybe ignore the ways that you have created us. We thank you that there is such great freedom in what it means to be a man or woman in our day. And at the same time, Lord, we ask that you would help us to humbly honor you above ourselves and our preferences, our politics, our priorities, and instead do things to the glory of Jesus and for the good of other people around us. So we come in humility today Asking you to teach us how to honor you as a man, as a woman. To embrace our great creator, our great redeemer, our great Lord. So we praise you for the pain, the truth, and the grace of your word this morning. May it help us to love and worship and honor Jesus better. may be done in the spirit of truth and grace and kindness towards one another may we live a life worthy of the calling that we have received in Christ Jesus